We've talked a lot on Mindful about culturally competent clinical practice and the lack of representation in the mental health field when it comes to many different minority groups. A few weeks ago, I attended the annual CPA convention in Toronto. I had a chance to speak with some representatives from Black Mental Health Canada, a group dedicated to connecting Black Canadians with mental health care, breaking down the stigmas and the suspicion of the mental health system in their community, and to educate professionals in providing that culturally appropriate care where it is needed. Today we're going to dive into what that care looks like, what the barriers are for Black Canadians in accessing that care, and what Black Mental Health Canada, or BMHC, is doing in communities across the country. My name is Eric Bowman, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. For many Black Canadians, their first contact with the mental health system is through the criminal justice system both systems that have historically marginalized and victimized minority communities, and in many ways are still doing so. Black Mental Health Canada, or BMHC, is one of the organizations trying to change this paradigm. Joining me today is their research project lead. My name is Shanique Victoria. Um, I am a registered psychotherapist qualifying out in the Durham region of Ontario. I have been working for, I would say, 10 plus years within the space of mental health in various different roles. Of late, I've also been working with Black Mental Health Canada. I am their lead researcher and program coordinator and developer for a lot of our workshops and trainings that we do. And I also do a lot of our, our media and speaking events as well. I want to get into what the lead researcher means there in a minute. But first, can you just give me an overview of what Black Mental Health Canada is and what it is you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So at BMHC, which is Black Mental Health Canada, I'll reference the abbreviation often. But our hope and our goal throughout this organization, first and foremost, is to highlight the reality for the Black community specifically that mental health exists. It's a, it's a real issue. There are people who are really struggling with mental health. And, and there has been many years of stigma that have really prevented Black communities from really engaging in mental health supports. And so that's the first and foremost is that we want to be able to be a mouthpiece to our community, provide them with the education, but as well as with resources and how they can access services. Secondly, we also want to be an advocate for culturally affirming care. The needs of Black people are very unique, specifically because of our history within this country, within North America in general, but also because of our, our culture and 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 specific things in regards to our culture that have led to, for example, past medical abuse or even ways in which in the past our community has been engaged with when it comes to mental health supports that have really kind of eroded the trust in the system. And so part and parcel of, you know, of educating the community, we also have to ensure that there's resources that will be tailored to the specific needs of the community as well. And so we do this through uh, three specific pillars. So the first is education and trainings. So this is education and training specifically right now for clinicians on how to provide culturally affirming care and racially equitable care for Black people. But we also advocate, so this is in regards to participating, for example, in the event where you met my colleagues, as well as engaging with, with government and community organizers about how we really can dismantle some of this stigma. 
And then finally, as well, we also really kind of advocate for just mental wellness in general and what that could look like for the Black community. You said two things there, which I kind of want to tease apart a little bit, right? You mentioned stigma within the Black community about mental health care, but you also mentioned, right, a sort of suspicion of the system itself. And I'm wondering which of those things are, can you separate those things? Are those two very, because they feel separate to me, right? That there's a stigma in accessing mental health care, right? Oh, you're going to see a therapist and, you know, what? there's a stigma that comes along with that. But then there's also a very understandable reluctance to do so based on a suspicion of the system itself over the many years that you mentioned, right? Where uh, Black people have been victimized by that system. Are those two the same thing? Can you tease those apart or are they part and parcel of the same sort of issue within the community? To be honest, I think this is what plays into the uniqueness of when we think about the needs of Black people, because they cannot be teased out. They're so intertwined because of the historical context of Black people within North America that it's really hard to separate. It's almost as as if, you know, there were those perhaps underlying elements of stigma because mental health was not well understood, perhaps. But that became exasperated when, uh, for example, for many Black people, their first line to any form of mental health care is through the justice system, right? They end up having a, a mental health crisis. They they end up being arrested. They go to jail. They get charged with a crime. And then from there, they are then, you know, found to have some form of mental illness. They end up going into a forensic mental health unit as opposed to, for example, an outpatient community care clinic. And so all of that leads to trauma and trauma experiences that then become translated through the generations and really heighten that stigma. I see how that would would create, right, generational trauma is something we talk about a fair amount, right? That, you know, over the course of many years, the trauma is passed down from one generation to another. Stigma is also passed down from one generation to another and a distrust in the system is as well. And how do we tackle this idea that so often it is the justice system that is your first point of contact with any sort of real mental health help. Are you saying that there needs to be something much greater in place before you get to the point where the criminal justice system is the one making that intervention? Or should we be doing something different at the at that end of it uh, with criminal justice where Black people are overrepresented by an enormous margin, right? Here in Canada, Indigenous people as well, way too represented in the criminal justice system for a variety of factors that aren't necessarily obvious, I guess, uh, to the rest of the world. But is it better to focus on prevention, right? The get mental health help as soon as you need it, do away with some of that stigma, or can we also at the same time rehabilitate the way that we approach criminal justice uh, and mental health. I think we have to do both in tandem, to be honest. They both need to be synchronized and and may happening at the same time because it's been such a, it's so ingrained in the way in which we do things. It's really hard to unravel that. But I do think long-term though, we do have to be focused on prevention. I think that in and of itself is really kind of the gateway and the door. First and foremost, we we know for mental health in general, just much like, you know, other other forms of illnesses, not to say, you know, that they're 100% comparable, but I mean, early intervention is always better. 
the sooner that we're able to address some of these issues is the more we're actually able to help people so that they're not feeling paralyzed in other elements of their life and unable to function in other areas of their life. And so we'll always advocate for the prevention arm. But because of the way in which our society has has kind of developed, that it does need to happen in tandem, that we are having systems in place, such as criminal justice, for example, that is going through that rehabilitation process in tandem to you know, opening up more services, opening up more education opportunities for clinicians of color, for example, uh, to be able to come out and so that there's representation. So a lot of that sort of thing that could help also minimize stigma. One of the things that we've talked about a lot, right, and you just mentioned this, the representation within the mental health field. There are so few mental health practitioners who represent the minorities that might need the uh, the help uh, the most, right? And so you're talking about, uh, you know, clinically competent care, right? Culturally appropriate care, that sort of thing, which is something that you're then going to have to teach non-minority clinicians to provide. How does BMHC go about providing that sort of training and helping those clinicians become culturally competent where they may uh, have not really known much about it before this? So we do offer training workshops. We do offer one specific uh, one day training that actually thinks about offering care from a different perspective, a more Afrocentric perspective, one that really kind of focuses on the, the African heritage and the African culture of clients in tandem with what we have learned in school, evidence-based modalities. And so things like that are kind of how we have kind of approached it from the clinician side. But from the organizational side, we've also done trainings on such things like racial trauma and anti-Black racism to begin to, to augment the conversation and the dialogue around it. I think we're a firm believer that, you know, once we start talking about these things and we can have a general comfort in discussing these things, then we'll be able to have a lens from which we can look at how do we change these things. But if we don't even have the ability to talk about it in an open forum, for example, within an organization where, for example, like criminal justice, where there is this overrepresentation, but there's no one talking about the impact that perhaps that service is having on, on layering on levels of trauma, racial trauma that Black people already experience, then it's really hard to be like, okay, where do we start with that? And so we do offer trainings on that as well, um, on how to um, recognize it, but also how do you address it? What kind of micro level and also macro level changes need to be done in order to really kind of dismantle that within the organization or within someone's clinical practice? So it sounds to me like what you're talking about then is a larger understanding of the historic trauma and the current situation that's come about as a result of it. And I imagine that when you're trying to teach somebody, you're training somebody, that there's a fine line to be walked, right? Like Black people are not a monolith. Everyone's not the same in any way, right? Every person is very different. So there's no one way to treat everybody in any marginalized group. But an understanding of the group as a whole is still the goal. How do you walk that line? Where where do you, how does that come across in, in these uh, sessions? 
and you're right. Oftentimes people will come in and they expect more of a prescriptive model. Like you have a black client, this is all the check marks that you kind of tick. And, and, and then that way, yes, we've been part of that decolonization or dismantling within our practice. And it doesn't work that way because every person is unique. They come in with their own experiences and even the diversity amongst black community is very vast. What people, for example, who have come to Canada from Africa may experience is completely different to the lifestyle and the culture of people in the Caribbean. There are some similarities there, but they are also vastly different. And so for us, it's not about necessarily tailoring our work or our messaging to say that this is specifically how Black people should be treated. It's more along the lines of opening and broadening our lens. If we can be cognizant of the biases, if we can be cognizant of the history, if we can be cognizant of the fact that you may, you know, experience some hesitancy from a Black client and understanding that perhaps, you know, and I am I mean, just to take from a psychotherapy perspective, like a solution-focused, you know, six sessions may not necessarily be beneficial for some Black clients because of trust issues. Trust issues, not necessarily with you as the clinician, but trust issues in the system in general and the system in which you represent. And if you can understand that, then maybe you can also advocate for this client, for example, for a longer engagement period. Perhaps six, six sessions is not enough. Maybe you need to extend it amongst six months. Right. And really kind of advocating for your client in that regard so that you can really build that trust and then begin to help them work through some of their issues. And so that is more so the lens that we come from is it's kind of recognizing, you know, the fact that the individual in front of you, they have their unique story, but they also have this entire system that they have been operating it in that has in some regards may have, you know, veiled maybe some of their experiences or expectations coming into therapy and they're coming in with a sense of apprehension maybe or unsurety. And so how is you as a clinician can really kind of advocate and and provide that support in that space? Now, you mentioned the vastly different experiences of people coming to Canada from different areas of the world. And I imagine you come to Canada from somewhere in Africa. One of the main things that might be a barrier for you is a language barrier, being unable to speak English as well as you'd like and finding a clinician who can speak your language and connect with you on that level. My understanding with BMHC is that what you do is connect people in that way. If you're able to, how does that process work? Uh, If I'm somebody who, uh, if I'm a black person who wants to find a psychologist who can help me with this particular issue, can I go to BMHC and, and find that person? Am I going to get connected there? Or if I'm a clinician who wants to provide that sort of service, who says I have this unique specialty, uh, will they also come to you guys and get connected that way? Is that how it works? Um, Absolutely. We have a a vast uh, directory, which is actually Canada-wide. So we have been really kind of engaging with through our trainings and and asking individuals to to join us and building this directory so that people can have that that opportunity to get that type of service that they need. And so you can either go on our website, there's access to the directory on the website, and it will list, you know, the clinician, the languages that they speak, their specialty, where they're located. Or you can also just email us, right? And, And we can, you know, or call us and we we will hear you out. And from there, we'll be able to, to make, you know, a connection for you with maybe a couple of different therapists that you can then go and engage with to see if they'd be of help for you. And we will put that email and the website address in the show notes here. So uh, people listening right now can go there and send an email if that's something that appeals to you and that uh, you'd like to explore. I want to talk a little bit about your role as the research lead with BMHC. What does that entail and what sort of research are you doing uh, with the organization? 
Right. So um, oftentimes we'll get asked or approached to kind of work on different projects tailored to the Black community for specific organizations, for example, or for training purposes, like, for example, the one that we've done for Afrocentricity and Black mental health care. And so a part of my role is in developing the content for these trainings. And so a huge part of that is the, the research and, and kind of scanning the literature to see what is out there and putting it together in this comprehensive package. And so a lot of my research has been focused on the Afrocentricity components and that perspective and framework, as well as racial trauma, anti-Black racism, just mental health in general when it comes to Black people, understanding also just our Canadian history of Black people and like Canadian, um, the Canadian perspective. A lot of our data, unfortunately, right now is, is it's, we don't collect a lot of race-based data in Canada. So we, a lot of what we draw from is is American. And so a lot of it would be, you know, to make it more relevant to practice here in Canada is scanning our, our statistics and things like that to ensure that what we are providing is also, um, culturally Canadian. I think that's also um, important because our experiences are, are quite different and how how to be a Black person in Canada is, is kind of different than how to be a Black person in the United States, for example. A lot of, for example, the racism and stuff that is felt north of the border is not as overt sometimes as south of, of, of the border. And so sometimes it's it may seem as if it's, it's not happening or because we also are a multicultural nation, there is this, you know, kind of idea that racism doesn't exist here without really kind of understanding the nuances between race and culture and the fact that they're quite different. And so, you know, we may be very, you know, open and embrace different cultures, but still have undercurrents of racism. So that's kind of where my research has landed me up until this point. And how difficult is it with the lack of data here in Canada? I, this is something we've talked about quite a bit as well. The the fact that we really haven't done a lot of this research, uh, it hasn't existed up until now. I know the uh, University of Ottawa is doing some of it now, uh, where they're specifically looking at Black francophones and their mental health outcomes, but there really hasn't been that much of it. How difficult then is it to sort of try to extrapolate from American data or data from somewhere else in the world, right? When the culture is so different. We've talked about, for example, studies being done in Africa, South Africa, for example, doing a lot of studies there, but they don't necessarily culturally translate to Canada in any way, right? So how how difficult then is it to put all this together with that sort of void that we have here? Yeah, it can be really challenging, to be honest. I think, you know, the pandemic has shifted that a little bit, specifically in the government, like within gathering statistics and stuff like that. I think the COVID pandemic has really kind of heightened that. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot on Statistics Canada now from like, you know, 2022 onwards that I would say has really kind of highlighted some of this race-based content. But within actual primary research studies that look at mental health outcomes for Black Canadians specifically, yeah, it's very minimal. It's, it's small. And I think a, a huge part of some of the work that I do is, is, kind, of, is kind of trying to take from some of what we're reading from the American literature and putting it within that Canadian context for the people that are going to be getting the training so that they can see that. And, and I kind of go back to that idea of, for example, microaggressions. And yeah, we may not necessarily be, you know, called racist names, for example, outright. However, microaggressions are just as painful, right? They, there's something that, you know, we like to talk about with, from BMHC death by a thousand paper cuts. And, you know, this idea that, you know, 
one instance or one invalidation or one kind of subtle uh, racist encounter may just seem like one little paper cut. But if all throughout your years, you're just getting all of these paper cuts consistently, you know, at some point, you know, you're doing paper cuts on top of paper cuts. You're not healing properly. You can get infections. And ultimately that leads to a premature death. And that's what we see when it comes to mental health um, in the black community. And I imagine that it's a little bit more difficult to tackle an issue where microaggressions are the general, uh, you know, issue that is harming people, right? Whereas when it's very overt, as we are currently seeing south of the border and elsewhere in the world, then it seems like there's a more tangible thing to really uh, confront, right? Whereas microaggressions, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way that I've always sort of thought of microaggressions is that they are things that happen throughout the day where somebody can commit a microaggression with plausible deniability, right? With this idea that like, oh, well, you shouldn't have taken it that way because that's not what I meant. And you never really know whether or not that's what the person meant. You question yourself, uh, then you're sort of being gaslit. And at the same time, it increases things like imposter syndrome, right? All of that sort of thing. Uh, is that sort of an accurate representation? And does that make it more difficult to confront because you can't really confront it head on the way you can something more overt? Absolutely. And that's and that's exactly that's exactly it. And I and especially when you think about it in the context of organizations, you know, when you think about this happening in management, for example, and you know, nothing is being done about it. And you're also looking to succeed as a black person within this organization and how that Im impacts you. And, and then because it's not something that maybe talked about within your social group, maybe, you know, microaggressions is, is a new term for all intents and purposes, right? But it's not something that's been new, newly experienced. And so, you know, there are, uh, there's a whole generation before us who had to deal with that, but never really had the words for it, never really had the language. So it wasn't really discussed. And so you kind of turn to your own internal coping mechanisms, whether they be good or they be bad, or whether they be adaptive or maladaptive, I guess I should say. And, and, and then from there, how it just continues and perpetuates the cycle, because then those learned behaviors are passed on to the next generation of how to deal with these, along with, you know, different ways of, of racial and cultural socialization and the messages that are, are transmitted on both ends, whether you are uh, a minority or whether whether you're not right there's there are messages that be are that are transmitted along the way and those become internalized and those biases are the ones in which that we operate from which can be quite uh subconscious we may not even recognize what we're doing and and i think we oftentimes think that somehow our intentions minimize the impact of our actions or the things that we say when in fact they don't. And so even though you may have been well-intentioned in what you were saying or what you were doing, or you had no ill intentions on the other side, that still doesn't minimize the impact for that individual. And then from there being gaslit, being invalidated, having to kind of soak that all up, as well as the messaging that you may be receiving about your race as perhaps potentially inferior, being inferior or low status, and how you then have to operate in this world. And so, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot within the Black community is this idea of code switching and not right. being able to be your real self. And even that we know has such a significant impact on an individual that they consistently have to put on a different face or a mask whenever they're entering certain situations and and how that makes one feel so disconnected from themselves. And, and then that feeling you become numb, right? And so all of this just kind of augments and adds to it. But then 
at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, where do you turn to fix? Is it that I need to fix me because I'm numb and I'm disconnected maybe from my emotions and it's being acted out and played out in this way? Or, or is it that I need to confront this individual or do I have to confront this system? Like with microaggressions, there's so much at play that by the time you kind of take a minute to step back and look at how do we solve the problem? It is, it is all over. It's this kind of this huge, you're in the midst of this huge microcosm of things that it's, it's, it's so hard to even know where to start. I'm hoping you can define a couple of terms for me. Adaptive versus maladaptive. What does that mean exactly? Like, uh, is one just a healthy coping mechanism and the other not? And maybe you can give, can you give me an example of what those might be? I think it's, a, it's on a spectrum. And uh, and so I like to, I don't like to say good or bad because what may be considered bad for one person may actually be good for another person in some capacities. But adaptive is more along the lines of things that are going to help you maintain your optimal functioning. They're not diminishing your ability to act in a healthy manner that is for you, healthy for you. Maladaptive are things on the other end that are kind of perpetuating the cycles that you may find yourself in. And so it's kind of easy to pinpoint to say that, for example, the use of substances or substance dependency would be considered a maladaptive coping strategy for many, simply because of we know the impact that that narcotics has on individuals. However, there is a unique complexity when it comes to the use of, for example, marijuana, specifically because of its cultural and historical ties to a lot of you know, Caribbean countries and this idea that smoking marijuana is not considered something that is maladaptive. And so that would be an example of, for example, going in and, and working with a, a, a Black youth, for example, who may culturally use marijuana as a way of relieving anxiety, you know, kind of just getting through the day. And for them, it is not maladaptive at all. They are still able to go to school. They're still able to get have their job. You know, they are, in, for all intents and purposes, you know, a productive member of society. It's not impacting them at all. Uh, but perhaps from our training, which is, is uh, Eurocentric for all intents and purposes, you know, a substance is a substance. So the fact that this is, you know, a part of your coping strategy, you know, it may be, we may be quick to note that down as something as maladaptive, but it's, it, it helps them and it's a part of their cultural identity as well. And so kind of understanding that perspective of what is helping this individual function in a healthy manner for them, as opposed to something that is unhealthy. I get that. I say, as I drink my fourth coffee of the day, I, I'm wondering if something like code switching could be adaptive or maladaptive for people as well, right? The And correct me if I'm wrong here, that my idea of it is that you present a certain face like at the office that makes your coworkers more comfortable with you and leads to fewer microaggressions or leads to fewer confrontations and allows you to be uh, as good at your job as you possibly can given that environment. But I imagine for some people that it is actually a maladaptive thing because it makes you feel like you're not really being who you can be at, that you're being somebody else, right? That you're that you're faking it at the office. So is that something that can be both maladaptive or adaptive? Um, absolutely. I, the th the example that's coming to mind for me specifically is for black women in our hair, and this idea that to be in a corporate setting, you need to have really straight hair. It needs to be, you know, it, we can't have an afro. We can't 
for the longest time also, I, I think braids were also considered or, or locks, having locks was also considered, you know, unprofessional. And so for many women, you know, maybe they wore a wig or they just, you know, they put chemicals in their hair or they went and got their hair um, straightened as in line with this code switching. But in turn, what that could have done for them on a maladaptive lens is led to internalized racism, this hatred now for your hair. So now you can never wear your hair out naturally. It always had to be processed or it, oh, you always had to wear a wig. And this idea of not having it is it's it's like there's something wrong with you and how that messaging becomes internalized and how that leads to other things. You know, there have been individuals who've gone and they hate their blackness. They hate, they hate their lips. They hate their eye, like other things that to be honest, if they didn't have to code switch as a way of surviving an environment, uh, it wouldn't have led to some of these other non-healthy ways of, of viewing themselves. One more uh, word that I hope you can define for me, Afrocentrism. What do you mean when you say that? And specifically from a clinical lens, what does that mean in practice? Afrocentrism, which is the Canadian way of talking about it. There's also Afrocentrism. Um, but within Canada, in the Canadian literature, we talk it as we speak to it as Afrocentrism. And really and truly what it is, is just prioritizing the African heritage and the culture of the individual. It's in contrast to more Eurocentric ways of doing things that really kind of take on more of a medical prescriptive model. So for example, even down to the way in which we do assessments, right? We may look at certain things like, for example, uh, a black person who's constantly maybe, you know, looking to the side or, or, or um, looking at the time as hypervigilance without really kind of understanding the cultural nuances of, of that, right? It may not be anything than just, that's just how they are. That's just how they show up in a space. And I mean, other things can also entail about our values and our value systems. Understanding that for, for many um, Black cultures, our value system is not very based on the individual. It's a collective how we operate as a collective. And so when we come and we only see the person or we're only focused on the person or we're only focused on the psychopathology, for example, we're minimizing the, the unique experience of the, the entire individual. We're not necessarily seeing that whole person. And so if we're only treating a part of that person, we're not really helping them in their totality. And so a part of the Afrocentric perspective is how do we see this whole person taking into account their cultural framework, the idea that they come from a system that is housed on, you know, values that are much different than the way in which we may be trained. And so how then can we adopt our trainings in such a way that we are being more open to this idea of centralizing their culture and their African heritage. And so some parts of doing that are, for example, that we've talked about is, is tailoring certain modalities. So there have been some CBT modalities that have been adapted for minority groups such as South Asians and, and for Black people. There's been some narrative therapies that have also been adapted for this as well. And so a part of that is, is shifting your lens. You know, when we think about it from a, clini a clinical perspective is, you know, shifting that lens, perhaps doing therapy the way that you've always done therapy when you're working with black clients is not helpful. Maybe coming out of the office, if we're recognizing the fact that this is an individual who's had uh, you know, a significant amount of trauma when engaging with a system, and we are a part of a system, as long as we are coming from a position where they're going to perceive us as 
in power or some form of authority. We are a part of the system. And so, you know, maybe it's, it's taking our therapy outside of the office, or maybe it's, as I mentioned before, the longer engagements also down to the way in which we ask questions, you know, some of the ways in which that we ask, we're trained to ask questions can be very triggering, can be very traumatizing. And so taking again into consideration that, that heritage and that cultural perspective, how can we maybe reframe some of our questioning so that we are we are being more culturally sensitive to their needs? One of the one of the examples I always think of when we talk about this sort of thing is Dr. Monica Williams was on this podcast and talking about how she got into this work in the first place. And I think she was an undergrad and they were recruiting participants for a study on obsessive compulsive disorder. So do you have these symptoms? Do you have these, uh, you know, tendencies? They recruited people and all of the people who showed up to do the study, none of them had OCD, but all of them were black. And it was because of the way they had framed the question, because of the way they had put out these uh, things without any sort of understanding of the way that uh, certain cultures approach certain things. Right. And that's always the example that sticks out to me that, uh, you know, the Eurocentric model doesn't account for very many things of this nature. Right. And I think language is a huge part of that. And that's part of the work with BMHC when we talk about psychoeducation. You know, we we have to un- talk the language, right? We can't just, you know, expect that if we continue to speak the same language in which we are trained, that we're going to meet our clients where they are at because they don't speak that language. They don't, they don't understand. Like some some places will even tell you, like, didn't grow up under even knowing mental health. That was not even a, a, a conversation. Mental health. What is that? Right. And so for us to come out here and be like, oh, we want to talk about mental health. That's disconnecting because they don't understand that. That's a new term for many cultures. And so that as well. Terrific. Well, let's finish with this then. People are out there who might want to seek the services of a culturally appropriate uh, mental health professional or mental health professionals are out there uh, who might want to uh, join this uh, BMHC group to be able to provide those culturally competent services. What do you say to them? How can they go about accessing the services that you guys provide and uh, becoming a part of this? Absolutely. And we're always open to, to to anybody who would like to join this movement with us. Uh, but yes, I would say follow, uh, go to our website, www.blackmentalhealth.ca. And uh, there's a lot of resources there. There's also information on how to contact us at info at blackmentalhealth.ca. Our phone number is there as well. As I've mentioned, we are a national organization. And so even though our head office is based in Ontario, we do have partner and satellite groups uh, that are, I think, pretty much almost in every province at this point i think and so which is great but obviously you know we we're missing the territories we were we're missing some of the people who may be living up north who are also identify as black and so uh, we definitely want to be able to broaden our reach but that also takes you know people from those different areas who want to be a part of this as well and so that would be my recommendation terrific uh, shanique victoria thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today uh it's been a pleasure getting to know you thank you so much appreciate Black Mental Health Canada is always looking to help Black Canadians access culturally appropriate mental health care and to help clinicians and mental health professionals provide that care. If you fall into either of these categories or just want to learn more about the work BMHC is doing, please go to the show notes of this episode for links and information. Mindful is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Eric Bullman. Our producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.